Hello, and welcome to episode 91 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Uh, You can find all of our previous Tennis Abstract podcast episodes at podcast.tennisabstract.com. You can also listen to the two of us talk about the coronavirus pandemic at dangerousexponents.com, if that is also your kind of thing. Um, You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Tennis Abstract. Carl is at Carl Bialik. And you can check out Carl's podcast, 30 Love, with a variety of great guests from around the tennis world. One of these days, there will be a new episode, he keeps telling me. So I'm looking forward to that. And you should as well. So as we've been promising for a little more than a month now, this is our first book club episode of the Tennis Abstract podcast. And our first selection was the book A Handful of Summers by Gordon Forbes, a South African player from the predominantly the 50s and 60s. It's considered to be one of the best tennis memoirs ever written, maybe even the best, depending on who you ask. Um, I certainly enjoyed it. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, We've never done a book club episode before, so we'll see how this goes. Um, We chose it in part because um, Gordon Forbes died of coronavirus in December. I mean, he had reached a ripe old age of 85, I think, 86. Um, Nonetheless, good time to remember the guy. And it was also a a reminder that this book existed. And I don't hear it talked about as much as some other famous tennis books, but the people who love it really love it. So, Carl, let's let's jump into talking about a handful of summers by Gordon Forbes. Um, in in chatting before we we started recording this episode, we were we, we want to talk about the difference in between tennis in Forbes's day and and tennis these days, and it's a, a particularly extreme difference right now because. The news right now, since there's no tennis going on, is a bunch of players stuck in hotel rooms in Australia, and they're all worried about how they're going to work out five hours a day, especially the ones who are stuck in hard quarantine and, and worried about getting the right food. And it's it, it, it probably couldn't be further removed from the world of the 50s and 60s tennis that Gordon Forbes describes. Um, it, it, if you tried. So, I mean, Carl, what, let's start with, with that idea. What, what struck you the most in terms of like how, how different the world Forbes was describing from what we're familiar with today? It it was all just so light. And I, I, I don't think this was true for everyone in the amateur tennis circuit as much as it was for him and his friends. So it probably is a somewhat skewed view and we can get into why that might be, but it, it nonetheless just like sounded like such a lark. Like it, it was all fun and games. I mean, he he did want to win, and he did recount some some excruciating losses, but there wasn't prize money. Uh, whether he got to go to a tournament or not often seemed to be more around his own personal situation, and whether he had like a personal connection to the people running the tournament. And in between, there weren't five hours a day of, of working out, whether it was the way you'd want to or the way people are doing it now in Melbourne in their hotel rooms. But, you know, 10 hours a day of having fun with his friends in various cities that offered many opportunities for fun away from tennis and then rolling out of bed and, and playing your match and maybe doing well despite the lack of preparation and sleep. So it 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 was 
kind of a dream, right? Like travel the world with your friends and have fun and eat well and, and play some tennis too. Um, whereas now it's it's a Benoit pair notwithstanding, you know, it's like a professional sport and a very serious endeavor. So I think that that struck me as, as the biggest difference. It's just that the stakes felt pretty low that either way you're you're having a good time and traveling. Yeah, one of the things is that just came up in the news today is that the the players who were stuck in the hotel in in Australia were were warned not to feed the mice. <laughs> That's not helping the situation in their hotels, and you definitely get the sense that that some of these guys Gordon Forbes talks about are the sort of people who would find a mouse in their hotel room and think it was hilarious and and feed it and keep the family around. And one of the most familiar names, even for people who aren't interested in, in tennis history, one of the most familiar names in the book is Rod Laver, who uh, Forbes competed against in singles and doubles. He he roomed with once because it was a normal thing to do to be, be rooming at somebody's, at somebody's house with one of your competitors. Um, and it would seem like if there was anybody in that era who did take things more seriously or who was more modern in their outlook than the rest of the pack, it would be Rod Laver. But I didn't really get that feeling. I mean, did you, Carl, was was, was Rod Laver different from the pack or was he just one of the guys who just happened to be way, way better at tennis than most of them? Yeah, I... I think one interpretation is just that Laver was so good at everything that he could be one of the guys and have fun, but also probably be be working like hell to to be who he was. Although Forbes seemed to mostly chalk it up to his uh, his mentality, and that you know it wouldn't necessarily be something he had to work on five hours a day. But the scenes we get of Laver, he's just another bloke. He certainly doesn't seem to take himself. Um, very seriously or or be you know arrogant or, or see some kind of hierarchy among the players just because he was <laughs> the best of them and, and beat them and it, like really comes off as very regular and likable which, which is consistent with other things we've read about labor but I always kind of imagine that that's how he was in the locker room and on court but that he still had his own his own world where he was doing what he needed to do to be maybe the greatest of all time but here he just seems like he, you know, eats with them and, and sleeps with them, well, sleeps in the same room with them and uh, and is, is just part of the pack, but is also this incredible player with this incredible mentality. And and that that was really appealing. And, and the, the scenes with him are some of my favorite in the book. Yeah. And it seems like you kind of had to be that sort of person. And, and it would have been tough to be a prima donna or standoffish because players didn't have entourages. I mean, they're not, they're not talking about traveling with a coach or, or even with parents. I think the situation was a little different for some of the women at the time because some, some of the star women players were good at such a young age that they would be, they would be traveling with a parent or a coach. Uh, not all, far from all of them, but some of them would be so that the, it would have been a little different. But for the men, I mean, it was like a almost like an extended fraternity vacation or something. Um, and if if you had a different attitude towards things, like if if you were sort of a proto Jimmy Connors, let's say, then you would have had a really hard time. I mean, st- stuck um, spending the night in a room with someone you're playing in the next day. I mean, that doesn't seem to match with the the Jimmy Connors ethos or or what you'd expect from from players nowadays. So if if Rod Laver was the best of the bunch, um, 
I mean, Gordon Forbes must have been pretty good. When you look at his his historical records, how he's remembered as a player, people focus more on his doubles exploits because he he won a mixed doubles slam with uh, with Darlene Hard. He reached a, a a major doubles final in the men's doubles. Uh, he had some notable singles wins. I think he was he was ranked in the top 20 at one point. I mean, that's sort of a fuzzy way of looking at things because the rankings were not the way they are now. It was just some, some newspaper men putting players on a list. But, um, I mean, somebody thought he was a top 20 player, at least at one point. He beat Rod Laver on presumably what was a Rod Laver off day once. Uh, I mean, did you get an idea from the book of, of where Gordon Forbes stacks up among his peers as a player? Yeah, I think he did a decent job of getting that across while also being more of kind of an impressionistic writer in this book and and giving us scenes from, from tournaments. He, he didn't like dwell on only the tournaments where he did well by any means. So yeah, we get a sense that he was at his most comfortable coming to net, not much of a baseliner, therefore not much of a clay quarter. And also, as we said, not the hardest worker, the most serious player. Um, So, yeah, I think that added up to kind of average. Like, nobody was surprised to see him in the field anywhere, but nobody was, like, terrified to see him on in their side of the draw. That, That was my kind of hunch. And also just, like, a very genial presence, like, probably whoever he was playing knew him or or knew someone who knew him and that they would they would get along just fine no matter how how the match went which which might have something to do with also his double success in addition to his net game uh that he was able to pair with people pretty successfully Uh, and you know doubles probably rewards more pure skill and less um hard work at, at staying fit. Although he did describe some pretty epic doubles matches, which would have been fun to attend, including one against Laver after that, that night they roomed together. Yeah, that's, that's a good story. And, and I think, I think we're doing you a service as a, as a reader or future reader by not telling you the, the stories we can give you the, the overarching idea of what was in the book, but Forbes is a really excellent storyteller and maybe some of them, haven't aged great, but many of the stories are just laugh out loud funny. I said on Twitter that, you know, I, I, I was laughing out loud enough that I, I woke up my kid late at night, which I do not recommend. I recommend the book. I do not recommend waking up your kid in the middle of the night, but um, it might have been worth it for the, the quality of some of the stories or the, the punchlines involved. So so if we've got Laver as our sort of nonchalant star at the top of the game and, and guys like Gordon Forbes who are very talented but not not taking the game super seriously above all other things like we get from from pros these days. I mean, I know, Carl, both of us have have read a fair amount about this era of the game's history, but this does give us sort of a different perspective from from at least the the one player's viewpoint. Did this this change at all your assessment of of how the game itself or the level of competition in the late 50s and 60s differs from where it is today? Um, I, it seemed, it felt pretty consistent with what I, I had read and expected. I guess it, 
it really shed light for me on the circuit outside the slams. I'd probably read a lot more about about the slams and getting a feel more for what what was involved in. You know, when you look at let's say on the wonderful website tennis abstract the the season for a given player in that in that period and uh, the matches that that we know about and or maybe for multiple years you're like why that year did he go to the US but not not to not in other years and and what was that like and this really provided more color for me about that like what what it would take how random it might be what it would be like to to fly in those days and then be expected to play very soon after arriving um and then i think while while i had the general sense of how much camaraderie and just sort of like physical closeness there was among the players at least from forbes's telling it was it was more more the case and and more a part of the game than i really appreciated how you would be chatting with the guy you were about to play against just before and just after and maybe have dinner with them and um that before playing him you would also have everyone in the locker room come up to you and give give you their scouting report and i i think there's still some of that in tennis and we hear about some of the characters in the game who are more like that but partially because of the entourage partially because of the higher stakes for winning or losing a given match it seems like that's much less a part of the game now um one thing that does feel consistent with what I thought and maybe somewhat consistent with tennis today is the the connections between the men and women that they um, there was more mixed at the time so that that meant even more connections there was certainly a lot of romantic interest on both sides and that continues to some extent and maybe because of the more like casual nature of, of the game, there's even more of like sitting in the stands and watching each other. Um, so that, that was nice to, even though I don't think the book covered women's tennis nearly as much as I would have liked, at least ex- other than the, the photo section, there, there was a, there was a, there was a sense throughout that the tour, the, you wouldn't call them different tours, but the two different, uh, groups were were close together a lot and aware of each other and not just aware of each other as potential you know dating partners but as like uh, people playing a sport at a high level who they'd want to watch and support and be aware of which which I appreciated yes partly that partly the opposite of that because every era has had either their their men who don't have a lot of respect to the women's game or the women who play a game that the, the the men particularly don't respect, like Forbes can't resist a couple lines about like being afraid that his his match in Rome is going to go on really late because two of the Italian girls will lob each other back and forth for hours. Um, I mean, people have been complaining about w- women's tennis and the moon balls for as long as there's been women's tennis. I guess you don't hear it that much anymore, but it was definitely going on then and, and going on for decades thereafter. And and Forbes can't resist a couple digs in that direction. Um, but one thing that that struck me about the the amateur experience of the time is like I, I think I've read more about the the, the pros and the, the professional circuits in in the sixties were they were pretty grueling. It was a small number of guys, and as we're talking about Carl, it, they were they were traveling together, living together. They pretty much had to be friends, or at least had to, to coexist very closely. And I always thought of the amateur circuit as being different from that, but. 
It sounds like it really wasn't that different. It's, for instance, the tournament where, where Forbes beat Rod Laver, the two of them uh, were, were flown into a tournament in the, the American South kind of as the stars. And they were given more expense money. Maybe they were the only ones given expense money. I don't know. Um, they weren't being paid literally as professionals, but they were, they were being paid de facto. They were treated as stars. They were put on opposite sides of the draw. They were expected to make the final. Um, they flew in the day before and left the day after. I mean, maybe separated by a week. But it's not that different from, from barnstorming as professionals. And you get the sense that outside of a pretty small circuit of tournaments, which would include the majors and, and the Italian Open in Rome and a few others, but not a lot of others, that's pretty much what their what their life was. You, know, you, you show up at some club in you know somewhere in the UK or the US or South Africa and, and play some matches against nobodies. Uh, and then maybe you have one or two or three matches against a really good player who was also brought in for the purpose of, of that week. And that's when it's really serious, but, but that's as far as it goes. And those are all those are all your friends, just as they would be on the on the professional tour. Do you think I'm am I oversimplifying that? Do you think there's a bigger gap than what I'm saying between the the amateur circuit at that time and how the pros lived? No, I think you're describing it well, and I think that there's there's certainly more like concentration of competition in the pro circuit but the lifestyle probably had a lot in common i mean there there is this like mostly unspoken in the book well partially unspoken in the book point that there there was a certain privilege to being able to play the amateur circuit unless you really could could get enough money under the table to pay to pay your way that you need to be able to afford to to travel, not just afford in terms of cost, but uh, afford to not be working another job during that time. So the pro circuit at least theoretically would would pay enough over the table to 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 make that possible. And Forbes eventually, like this eventually affects Forbes's career because he does eventually need to start uh, earning a more regular living back home. And you know, I don't think he would have been had a significantly better career, but it was kind of a reminder of how that was one element to being successful. And I don't want to make it sound like today in, in professional tennis, that's not a factor. And like, you don't need a whole hell of a lot of money up front for the, for most players to be able to compete at the highest level once, once they're adults. But, um, even once Forbes was competing, this was, this was a factor pretty much no matter how he did at tournaments. Yeah, I would. Uh, this is probably an, an impossible research project, but I would love to piece together all of the information we have about what kind of appearance money was paid to players. And as I've been researching women's tennis in roughly the same era, I'm coming across bits and pieces here and there, and you get the sense that international players in general, the ones who were invited to play, they got enough money to live on just barely, especially if you put that together with free food at the tournament sites and and maybe free lodging with, with club members and the like. And then at, it, there's a very, very small number of players like Laver and, and like a few other stars who, who got more money and probably not as much as they got as professionals, but enough to, to do better than just survive. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the one difference between then and now is is certainly now it takes a ton of money to get started probably a lot more money to get started than it did then 
But on the other hand, if you can find an investor who's willing to back you, I mean, whether it's literally an investor or someone who serves as an investor in a de facto sense, um, they can expect to get some money back at some point. Like if, if you do raise a champion as a parent, then you're going to be part of a family of millionaires eventually. Uh, back then, if you invest a lot in your kid's tennis future, you're doing it for status, I guess. That's, that's pretty much it. I mean, and, and for some people that was enough, but you can see why there wasn't the same sort of funneling of super athletic talents onto the tennis circuit that, that, that there is now, that there just, there just wasn't the gold at the end of the rainbow that there there is now, even if it's pretty elusive for most players these days. So you hinted at this a little earlier, Carl. Um, there is not a ton of information in the book, a ton of stories that involve the, the women tennis players who are around much of the time. Um, you also joked that that women tennis players do turn up in the photo section. There's a few photos of Gordon Forbes's sister Jeannie, and there's also some photos of of mostly the the better looking female players of the time uh, who don't necessarily get mentioned that much in the text. Um, I mean, it, it, how, do you have any further thoughts about how Gordon Forbes talks about or? treats women in the text or how the, the players of his contemporaries were, what their attitudes were, to- were towards women? Well, I'm impressed that you can distinguish the better looking players of that era. I didn't realize we had these stats on Tennis Abstract. Well, we don't have, we don't have these stats, but in a way it, it was a lot clearer then than it is now because, it, because sports writers were in no way ashamed to say something about it. Like the, the, the players who were known for being attractive, like that was the, that was the adjective that went with them in, in every news report, not attractive, but the, I can't think of a good one that was, that, that would have come up in the era. But, um, but I think every, everybody knew who, which players were, were thought of as the lookers back then and, and much more so than, than we talk about now. Just like there were all those newspaper accounts of Gordon Forbes's fine calves and Laver's uh, forearm, right? No, probably not. Um, well, no, I mean, I think that was even a little more common too. But, but yeah, probably a lot more references to, to women and shapely legs than than Laver and shapely anything. So, you know, I thought about the photo thing, and Gordon Forbes is a straight man who is probably where in film is probably a limited commodity, and he i'm not sure what he did with the photos but i can understand that he wouldn't just take a random assortment of of photos in terms of the text treatment of of women you know i i i said some favorable things about the extent to which he he described women tennis players and and connections but there there were some kind of disparaging comments about the actual tennis uh, I mean, players have complained about the players before them going on forever on court and delaying their match. So that part of it didn't bother me as much. Off the court, a lot of the book is about Forbes and his buddies basically chasing women. And I mean chasing in the in the worst sense. And Well, maybe not quite the worst sense. Okay, but... maybe not the worst sense. But it's it's written in a very light... Everything is light. So it's, I think I understand why for a lot of people who, who read this book, especially if they read, read it at a younger age or an earlier time, it just sounds like good fun. But if you, if you break down what he's actually describing, there's this attitude 
of women as like existing to help him lose his virginity and get more used to having sex or women to trick into having more sex. Uh, and there's this story that is told as if it's the funniest story in the world, not about... I know exactly which one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and I'll, I'm going to be careful in how I describe it, partly to your point of like not just outright telling the, the, the book story. The story is effectively of a woman being raped, being sexually assaulted, because one man substitutes unbeknownst to her for the man she had agreed to have sex with. And it's told as if it is the funniest prank that has ever been been taken, and it's all fine because she finds it funny at the end, supposedly. Um, and I think that sums up for me the hardest part for me of reading the book, which is not necessarily that these things happened. I believe they happened, and it's good that we know they happened. And it does tell us something about the world at the time, and I'm sure the world today, uh, and of tennis players at the time, and what they found amusing and what they did with their free time and how they regarded women. But Forbes was writing this book from some remove and looking back on his notes from decades earlier and didn't seem to have any issue with it. There's no nothing in the in the prologue that that is like, I, I recognize now that some of this was, was wrong, but wanted to give you an unvarnished tale. So it seems like he still is completely comfortable with um, the depiction of women. And we can also talk about uh, depiction of uh, black South Africans, and um, so that that is upsetting to me that I've, I haven't seen that. Not only did I not see that in the book or in anything about Forbes for the rest of his life, but I haven't seen that in the a lot of the sort of um, loving commentary about the book. I'm I'm wondering if if that bothered you, or if I'm being too bothered by a different era. Well, the, that particular story was. It, I mean, it was a little awkward to read because the way he tells it, like you say, like every other story in the book, it's quite light and he, he tells it well. And if you, if you go along in the mindset of him or one of his friends, then it's a funny story. I mean, it's, I don't think you can deny that it, if you accept the premise of the time and the place that it's a funny story, but yeah, you don't, you don't have to think about it very much. I mean, we're talking about a, about a second of reflection to realize that yeah this is this is sexually sexual assault i mean this is completely inappropriate stuff in in today's context um i mean i, I a lot of the rest was so much just of its time that it didn't bother me like i i guess half the novels written by men of his generation were basically about trying to lose their virginity um I don't think many of the stories aside from that one that we're, we're talking about were, were that bad, at least in that context. Um, it's just, it, it's remarkable how much different the time is now from, from what it was then and how quickly some things became unacceptable. Uh, that someone who just died, who someone who was, was publishing this book first about 40 years ago um, could have, sent this stuff past the editor, probably without the editor batting an eye, uh, or even raising a question about it, uh, about things that would, would never see print right now. Um, so I think that that's really the more striking thing than, than most of the rest of it being hard to read. But, uh, but you, you already hinted at the next place we need to go about that, which is, which is the background of apartheid in, in South Africa. So Forbes was South African. Um, apartheid was, in place when he was born it was still going strong if not 
stronger or stricter at the time he wrote the book. And he's not in South Africa for much of the book. He's traveling abroad for most of the stories he tells. So there's a few stories about South, South Africa growing up and then some about South Africa when he takes some time off tour to work. But it's it's always in the background. And to me, having... I mean, I've read a lot about apartheid South Africa. I mean, I, last year I read a long biography of Arthur Ashe, which had a lot of content about um, Arthur Ashe's considerations about traveling to South Africa or trying to boycott South Africa and, and other, uh, other celebrities' approaches to apartheid. And Forbes lets it go by entirely uncom- uncommented. But for me, I, I couldn't avoid thinking about it for most of the book. It's just this, this specter in the background that it makes it all a little, a little bit darker. That the, These people can be, can be going around the world having fun. And in, in Forbes' case, some of, some of the money he made that facilitated his, the second part of his career came from a, a gun business that he was able to sell partly because of racial anxiety around apartheid. Um, it's... It's in the background. You can't deny it's there to a modern reader. And at times that did make it hard. I mean, did you did you have some of the same reactions, Carl? Absolutely. I think you, you put it very well. I realized one thing neither of us, I think, has explicitly said is he was a white South African. And maybe that goes without saying, given the era uh, of tennis. But... Um, that was the the side he was he was the, the part of the of the divide that he was coming from and it it comes out i mean there's nothing in terms of his description of the tour he's mostly talking about other white people maybe entirely almost entirely but yeah he, um, he mentioned no Arthur Ashe a couple times towards the end but that's yeah it. and i think in a, in a respectful positive way um but there's nothing about any of his behavior on tour or when traveling the cities that suggests any particular um, explicit racial bias. But he starts the book with a story that I think is pretty entirely unnecessary, or at least the part of it that was so troubling for me was unnecessary, where there's somebody he just describes as a little black boy who seems like maybe a household servant and he speaks about him with some affection, but also a lot of um, condescension isn't a strong enough word. Um, and no no sort of like subsequent awareness uh, expressed of like, that was my childhood and then now I recognize how fucked up that was. Um, I don't know how much we curse on this podcast, but now we have. And then the other part, as you mentioned, trading on racial anxiety, it was the anxiety of white people in South Africa. And in particular, he mentions that one of the best things for business was something that he describes as a riot. And he doesn't say anything about what kind of riot, who is rioting, and why that would make people anxious. And I look it up, and it seems from the timing and the name he gives that he's almost certainly talking about something that's now called a massacre. And it was a massacre of black South Africans who were peacefully protesting, massacred by police officers, yet somehow their peaceful protests were somehow, as as has often been the case, uh, peaceful protests by black people stir up anxiety from white people, which leads to them buying weapons. So great for Gordon Forbes, great for his, his tennis touring, no clear sign in the way he writes about it at the time and in the way he, he comes back and, and frames the book later on that there was something troubling about that. So yeah, I, I think... D- difficult to um, to read that, and 
would be interested to read what a 2020 Gordon Forbes uh, afterward would might have might have looked like and how, how I'm curious like how much he heard of this kind of feedback afterwards or if he mostly just heard a lot of like laughter and, and back slapping of like uh, you guys had fun yeah I'd be willing to bet it's 99 percent back slapping uh, especially I mean I'm totally just assuming here but especially given the circles he was likely to run in I mean other other elderly white South Africans are, are unlikely to to call him to task about what he did or didn't say in the book. Uh, and I, I something you mentioned a couple of times, Carl, there's this, in my edition anyway, there's a, a prologue written, I think in 2017, um, for the most recent edition of the book. So this is almost 40 years after initial publication. It's very short, and it, there's not really much much content there. But it, to me, that yeah, that's what makes it harder to read is the fact that there is this uh, 40 years later prologue and it doesn't even acknowledge that, yeah, things have changed, that, I mean, anything, anything at all. And, and that, that makes it a little hard. It, w- it would have been easy for, easier for me if I just happened to have an old first edition from 1978 and I didn't know anything about what would have been said or thought after the fact, but the fact that Forbes wrote the prologue 40 years on and, and didn't acknowledge any of this, that makes it a little harder. So it's, I mean, it, it, it is definitely fun to read. And I, I, I don't want to overstate this stuff because I mean, if, 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 if you want to read things written by white men from the seventies and read their stories, like this is kind of how their stories are. I mean, there's there's plenty of bad about that, but if you want to read the stories, this is this is what you get. I mean, this is what the time was. Uh, but it is it is there. It there is that 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 difficulty kind of lurking in the background when when he's off having fun with his buddies around the world. Yeah, I I've I totally forgotten about the 2017 prologue because it's so forgettable. I just went back to look at it again. It's, it's three pages on my Kindle, and it's it's. The age of innocence, artless nobility, um, clearly, clearly very much in the tone of the of the original book. So probably the twenty twenty version wouldn't have been that different. And yeah, I mean to your point, like if we're gonna read old stuff, there's gonna be old old stuff in it. And um, <laughs> to off the tennis topic, but in this pandemic, I've watched some movies that are not from the you know, the 1940s through 70s like this, but are from 20 years ago and have been shocked by what was considered acceptable on race, but even more so on, you know, treatment of women. And then gone to read the reviews at the time to to see, I'm sh- I was sure, like, you know, these, these writers, some of whom are still writing and are pretty righteous these days, slam the movie. And they didn't even mention it or mention it as a funny scene and also described the the women who were actors in the film as, you know, sexy or beautiful and the men in terms of their acting prowess. So even more recent stuff, um, and I'm sure some 2021 stuff too, contains similar content um, and definitely not disqualifying for, for reading the book. And uh, it's it the book has a, has a lot to treasure. So on that note, I, I haven't read enough tennis memoirs to know how it really stacks up, aside from saying that, you know, as a tennis memoir goes, this is a, a pretty good book. And like I say, I do recommend it, despite the, the caveats we've been discussing just now. Uh, 
So I, I can't really judge whether someone's right in saying it's the best ever, but I, this was sort of a golden age of, of sports memoirs. And I think there, there was a general move in the, in the seventies for, for people in general, but athletes specifically to, to sort of pull the covers off their sports and, and expose the, maybe not the dark underside, but the, the more colorful underside of their sports. And the most famous book from that era is, is ball four by Jim Bouton about, about baseball. And there's a hockey book, um, by Ken Dryden called the game. Um, and there's others. Those are the two that, that, that stick in my mind. And I think are, are the most famous from that era. Uh, have, have you read either of those, Carl? I mean, do you have a sense of how, how, um, a handful of summers stacks up in that context? Yeah, I've read Ball Four. It was it was quite a while ago, but my memory of it is that it was, um, it was a better book. <laughs> uh, that it was grittier and and funnier in like a more in a richer way, like less of just these are funny capers, and gave me more of a sense of. Um, of the overall systems of like, you know, the power structure, but not in like a heavy uh, journalistic way, but, but in, from the point of view of a player at the time. Um, and there's some of that with Forbes, it's clearly not what he's setting out to do. And I also want to give the caveat ahead of potentially you're correcting my, my memory of ball four that the author died recently, like, like Forbes died recently. And I may be unduly influenced by how people were, were singing the book's praises at the time and, and not my actual memory of it. But that's my memory is that it was, it was more of a broader critique while, while never losing its, its sense of humor. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and yeah, it's been a while since I've read ball four as well, but it, it definitely looms large in, in the, I don't know, the baseball collective memory that it, it was a cultural event just in, in itself that it was published. And I, I said earlier, all these books are to some extent sort of pulling the, pulling the covers off of their sports. And there was a lot under the covers of baseball in, in the early seventies. I mean, Bowden was one of the first people to openly talk about, uh, about drug use in baseball, about people, just players, just casually popping amphetamines before games. Uh, and there was the whole issue of, of player uh, management relations at the time that, that Kurt Flood was suing to end the reserve clause. And there was a, a lot of really complicated stuff going on that mostly people writing books, um, baseball writers in, in newspapers of the day were, were just ignoring, uh, partly because of their relationships with management that were usually pretty cozy or even had to be structurally pretty cozy. Uh, so, so Bouton really, really exposed a lot that that wasn't otherwise available to the common fan. And I mean, there, there probably just wasn't as much to be exposed with tennis. I mean, we've talked about some of the things we've learned about tennis at the time, but tennis fans reading in 1978 probably knew a lot of the stuff about what the structure of the tour was like, what the life for traveling amateur players was like in, in the early mid sixties. So there wasn't that much to expose. So, I mean, it, it's a similar book in the sense that it's a sports memoir, that it's funny. Um, but yeah, it's not the, it's not the same sort of cultural milestone that, that ball four is, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it might be it might be stretching the point too far to to even class them together. Uh, just to to start wrapping things up, I'm curious, Carl. If I mean, do you think that a book like this 
in in the sense that I, mean, I don't know this sort of memoir of of capers around the world, the sort of lighthearted story about being a, a tennis amateur or, or the equivalent of today's professional. Could that sort of book be written by a player today? And if so, who would write it? It there aren't that many players today who we know just have fun and see the fun in things as as one of their primary reasons for being on tour probably a lot more than we know fit that bill but uh benoit pair comes to mind because he just wrote something uh that rocket magazine published i think it was republished from a and translated from a french publication uh that that is somewhat on this point about you know enjoying life on tour and 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 so on um we 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 definitely don't see the same kind of group camaraderie and closeness and also the spare time distance from Andra. There are all sorts of things we've already said are different now. That said, there are groups of players who are clearly very close, who vacation together, um, who tell us they, they do on social media and uh, and train together and so on. So, you know, someone who maybe is in one of those groups could could share some some tales. Um you know, Gael Monfils comes to mind as, as someone who seems pretty thoughtful about what what he's getting out of the sport and, and how he, he doesn't mind if he's not doing things the conventional way. Maybe in 20 years, if Nick Kyrgios has become more thoughtful and less of a troll, um, he certainly seems pretty intelligent and uh, has has some different viewpoints about, about the sport. Um in the women's game, I, I'm surprised to say that recently I found uh, Azarenka to be very thoughtful and um, have have different outlook and be more outspoken. So uh, she's probably and, and she's had quite quite an interesting few years uh, just in, in being able to get back on tour and, and get back into position. Uh, I'm just I'm kind of throwing out names randomly. I have not sort of gone through the list, but. I think there are, I mean, who knows what Coco Goff is going to have to tell us or Naomi Osaka in, in, in 20 years. It wouldn't be the same kind of book for sure, but uh, I, I would love to see someone uh, give the same level of, of transparency and, and have the same quality of writing um, to, to their career. I think there, there could be stories that are at least as interesting to tell, even if they're different ones. Yeah, I, I I figured we'd probably get to Benoit Paire's name, and you make a good point that the the French players as a whole seem to be a little bit more in the older school mold. That, I mean, just totally anecdotally, when I was at the Cincinnati tournament several years ago, uh, I went out to dinner one night, and and Federer had been there earlier with his team, and I saw Del Potro with his team, mostly players and their entourages, but there were I think four. French players who were out together. I know Manorino, Manorino and Beneteau were two of them, but it wasn't an entourage. Maybe there was a coach or two there, but they were they were hanging out as presumably as friends. And I had high hopes for Gilles Simon's book, which just came out in French and and got my friend Jeff McFarland, who we've heard on the the podcast before, um, who's who can read some French to to check out that book and. Based on his early reports, that book is not at all what we're talking about here. It does not come to the same level by any stretch, so a bit of a disappointment there. Uh, and of course, as you point out, Carl, we're talking about books that someone might write in 20 years. I think the the bigger obstacle, rather than finding the right person to do it, might just be the sort of the climate around in 
people being more forthcoming about this kind of stuff. Because in, maybe a name you you didn't mention that I'd love to read the the unfiltered book by is Roger Federer. I mean, he seems like a seems like a funny guy. He has a unique perspective on things, but anything he says now is so carefully filtered. Um, because it has to be. I mean, if you're at that level of, of global celebrity, then, I mean, he, he, everything is a, is a PR statement, pretty much. And I wouldn't be surprised if 20 years from now, Roger Federer is in the same relative position. I mean, we're not hearing Bjorn Borg say a lot of interesting things these days. He's still kind of the same way. So maybe it'll be the same with Federer. But if, if he wrote a manuscript that he wanted to write that wasn't PR filtered, uh, I'd be... I'd be very, very eager to read that. I think that would he would he might have as good a chance as anybody to write something that would be be funny and interesting, even if we're unlikely ever to get to read it. Well, and you know, we probably shouldn't overstate the era difference. Just in that, it's not like Forbes's book is one of fifty books that people wrote at the time that are that are memorable and forthcoming. So even then, I think there was probably some first of all he was a good writer so that that was probably one reason that it, it survives to this podcast is something to talk about but i think throughout the history of the sport there's probably been a bit of like you know you don't go and tell tell the stories I, federer certainly has stories and it would be fascinating and i'm sure that he has at least a book in mind plus lots of writers trying to write them with him uh it would be very specific to number one it would be like Laver's written several books, and they are useful in a certain way. But a, a Forbes equivalent, I think you want someone who is who's not at the top of the heap and uh, has more of that perspective. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, I, I, I'm definitely envisioning a Federer book that would not be about Federer. And, and as such, it's a book that either he's never going to write or we're never going to see. So, I mean, I, I, I realize that's pure fantasy. Um, but a boy can dream. So... On on that note, let's uh, let's call time on our discussion of a handful of summers by Gordon Forbes. Um, I know several of you read along with us, so so thanks for taking part. We hope that more people will join in with the book club and send us ideas about what you'd like us to talk about or comments you have on the books themselves. On that note, um, this was the first edition, like I said, of the Ten Abstract Book Club. There's going to be at least one more. Um, Next month-ish, we're going to talk about a novel this time, um, a novel by John Updike called Couples. Uh, at least one person classed that as one of his best tennis novels. It's not entirely about tennis, so I guess fair warning if you care about that sort of thing, but Updike's great. I'm sure we'll be talking about some of the same social issues that we talked about with Forbes, since Updike is roughly the same generation, and there's many of the same issues that come up in discussion of Updike's work these days. But again, it'll be a snapshot of the time. So I'm looking forward to that, John Updike's book, Couples. Um, so Carl, thank you very much for, for joining me for the first Tennis Abstract Podcast Book Club. Thanks, Jeff. We're going to need a new name that's not quite so many words long, and maybe you can hear in the background. My my son is very eager for us to wrap this up. So you can check out our previous 90 episodes at podcast.tennisabstract.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Tennis Abstract. Carl's on Twitter at Carl Bialik. Our coronavirus podcast is dangerousexponents.com. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>